Welcome back to the Christian Origins podcast with Tom and John. Uh, Each week on this podcast, we've been exploring different topics related to the New Testament and early Christian history. And today we're continuing to ask the question, how were Jesus' sayings and deeds orally transmitted? Um, But before that, I'd just like to ask John, how's your ear doing? (laughs) Thanks for asking, Tom. Uh, My ear's okay. I think it had a slight perforation. So I would definitely, yeah, commend our viewers not to not to stick any cotton buds in there. It sounds um, painful. Yeah, we haven't been able to record actually because of it, so which is why this yeah. episode might be a bit coming out a bit delayed. But but we're getting there. We're getting there, yes. aren't we? We are. Um, but actually, just to jump straight into it, John, I remember this is actually a topic you focused on a bit during your masters. Um, I say I remember. I can never forget because you were always talking about it. But <laughs> you know, could you just give us a quick overview of what we looked at last week, and then uh, jump into that topic? Yeah. So um, during my masters, I had the privilege of working with uh, Dr. Eric Eve, who was a scholar who's really focused on this issue of the oral transmission of the Jesus tradition. And um, I highly recommend uh, his book. I think it's called Behind uh, the Gospels, Understanding the Oral Tradition, mm. because it's a really lucid and um, concise summary of a lot of um, the, the the material and the different models that we've been looking at. Um, and so, yeah, we've been looking at this question of what was going on before the Gospels were written. How was material about Jesus being handed on? And, you know, we said that, you know, anyone with a historical interest in the Gospels is going to be interested in this question. It's going to be interested in probing behind the Gospels to see what was um, what was going on. Um, but last week we said we don't know exactly what this process was like because, you know, by very definition, we don't have access to an oral period uh, where things uh, weren't necessarily written down very much. So this has led scholars to formulate different models or accounts of what that process uh, might have been like. And that takes us on to today's topic, because we're going to be looking at one model of uh, that traditioning process called form criticism. And this is a model which has suffered a lot of criticism itself since its uh, heyday in the first half of the 20th century. And we're going to be thinking about some of those critiques later on. But it's also had a massive impact on uh, the way some scholars have understood the traditioning process today. So, Tom, maybe you can just uh, very briefly for us just unpack, you know, what is form criticism? Uh, And then perhaps we can uh, understand uh, how it sort of uh, grasps this all traditioning process. Yeah, well, as you you say, John, form criticism really had its heyday in the early 20th century, uh, particularly in Germany, where it was represented by scholars such as Carl Schmitt and uh, Rudolf Boltmann, and even to a lesser extent uh, in England with scholars such as Vincent Taylor. Uh, But interestingly, in German, uh, the word is not form criticism, and you'll have to excuse my German here, but actually form geschichte, meaning form history. And as the name form history reflects, these scholars were interested in digging behind the Gospels to see what the material in the Gospels looked like before it reached its present form of the tradition. So what sort of uh, methods did the form critics use to kind of try to dig behind uh, the, the Gospels? 
Well, they did two things, really. First, they noticed that the Gospels are made up of little units, which are arranged differently in the Gospels and can almost be cut out and placed where the evangelist wants them. Uh, these units are often called pericope, uh, from a Greek word meaning to cut out. And they noticed that these different units can be grouped together as in different subgenres or forms. For example, there are parables, there are pronouncement stories, uh, which end with some pronouncement from Jesus, which often resolves a conflict. And there are nature miracles, or what they called tales and various other forms they identified and it's it's worth saying that the form critics believe these forms played different specific functions in the life of the church uh, it's what they called the sitzum liban now that's a very uh, biblical uh, scholar term but it's it means the setting in life and uh, some were used in proclaiming the gospels others in teachings uh, others in evangelism and they also believe that uh, some of the forms looked like they originated in the greek speaking church and actually fitted a greek context uh, whereas, whereas some uh, were more original and fitted an aramaic context for example uh, now, once the form critics had isolated these forms, they worked back from the forms as they are found in the Gospels to their pre-literary forms. Now, I know, that, I know that's a lot of forms in one sentence, <laughs> but the, the way they did this was by assuming that the tradition would grow in a particular way. And so the traditions could uh, be worked back to a pure form, if you like. So uh, I actually uh, was in Northern Ireland and I stumbled across a book in a Christian bookshop by the form critic Vincent Taylor, who you mentioned. Um, and I thought he has a very nice way of summing up form criticism. He says, form criticism is primarily concerned with the oral period. The base assumption is that during this period, the tradition circulated mainly in separate oral units, as he described, which can be classified according to their form. It is believed further that much may be inferred regarding the origin of the, these units, the causes which gave rise to them, so things like you know their purpose in evangelism, mm. in teaching, and the changes they underwent until, in course of time, they were given a written oral form. So that's kind of the uh, the method of form criticism or form geschichte. But with that method comes a whole bundle of ideas that the form criticism uh, the form critics are assuming about this traditioning process, which you know it might be helpful to tease out further. And one of the things uh, we, uh, one of the, the sort of sets of terms we came across last week uh, to label the form critical model was uh, informal and uncontrolled. And we compared this to formal and controlled models. And, and so, Tom, can you just sort of unpack in a bit more depth why these terms informal and uncontrolled are used to describe form criticism? Yes. So the first part of that characterization, as you were saying, John, informal relates to whether there is any church structure or any student teacher relationship by which the oral tradition is passed down. In the form critical view, the traditioning process was informal because it doesn't envisage uh, any such structure or students or teachers of the tradition. Instead, the tradition is passed down by communities and it is flexible and fluid and new material may be added to meet the needs of the different communities through which it passes. So for the form critics, it's it's not as if uh, you have, you know, a special person who has got the tradition, got the sayings of Jesus or got a story about Jesus memorized. And then he passes that on to someone else. It's not like that. It's just a sort of a more just a fluid process. Mm. But you you spoke about how new material might get added along the way in the form critical mindset, you know, where. But this sort of raises the question, where did the form critics think that this new material was coming from? 
do you have a, a sort of opinion on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question and perhaps one that deserves a whole episode in and of itself. But I, I think to put it crudely, you've got two possibilities. Uh, some form critics think that teachings were already present in the culture, such as Jewish uh, teachings or Greek aphorisms. Um, and these might have been attributed to Jesus as well. Mm. Uh, whereas some form critics also thought that early Christian prophecy might have contributed to the process. It's possible that prophetic communication with Christ uh, was sometimes included in the tradition and put on the lips of Jesus as a teacher. Yes, and uh, one of the justifications for that view is um, the epistles of Paul, where mm. sometimes Paul seems to be citing a word from the Lord, as he will say, or he's received something from the Lord. But it's not always clear if he's referring to a, re a revelation that's been passed down to him from someone uh, on earth or whether he's actually receiving a revelation directly from heaven. Um, so we have uh, in the form critical mindset this this kind of informal um, process where material is being added. It's being changed. Why is it called uncontrolled? Why is that word used to describe Criticism. Yeah, it's referred to as uncontrolled because there isn't anyone who is keeping a check on the tradition to make sure it remains stable. For example, in the form critical model, there are no eyewitnesses guarding the tradition or central institution safeguarding it. Um, you know, named individuals actually play little or no part in actually keeping check on this tradition. Uh, and I think overall, then, the form critics portray a view of the traditioning process, which shows little interest in actually preserving the past. So I think we have the basics. And I know there's much more that could be said on form criticism, but I think uh, we should probably move on to evaluating it. And I'm interested, John, from your uh, studies, is there anything you find plausible about form criticism? You know, anything you think it does well? Well, um, if you remember last time, we kind of set out three things that a successful model would do. Mm. Uh, so those were, it would make sense of the data of the Gospels. Uh, it would make sense of uh, what we know about all tradition generally. And it would make sense of the specifics of what we know about early Christianity um, as a movement. Um, I think form criticism has weaknesses in relation to all three of these criteria. But there are a few things that form criticism probably does do. Firstly, I think form criticism rightly highlights uh, the fact that the oral tradition was probably not completely uh, formally controlled. Um, I think given the spread and the geographical spread and the way that Christianity spread very rapidly, I think it's unlikely that in every situation or every performance of the, the, the Jesus tradition, this material about Jesus, the sayings and the episodes, that there was some disciple or eyewitness of Jesus ready at hand to correct any possible mistakes or variations that might have emerged in the process. Um, and even if there was, I don't think this would necessarily guarantee a more stable source. So mm. I think that's that's something that the form criticism, the form critics do um, mm. do highlight successfully. Yeah, um, I think whilst eyewitnesses must have played some part, and uh, maybe we can talk more about this later, it, it seems difficult for them to have remained a very strict control. You know, it's certainly true that there is no obvious reason why the tradition must be limited to them. Yes, and uh, I personally do think eyewitnesses did play a role mm. in in guaranteeing the tradition. Uh, the traditioning process to some extent but as you say i think you know the form critics are right to push back on extremely formal views because what they're right to highlight is that the, the, a lot of this material probably did have an oral form before it had a written form and variations can be made to oral tradition um as they as they can be to written texts but i think sort of in highlighting that there was an oral tradition 
um, it does open the possibility for change. And I think that's a significant sort of step in gospel scholarship. I think also the basic notion that much of the tradition was shaped for pastoral and charismatic, that would be sort of evangelistic or proclamatory purposes, uh, is also quite insightful. Uh, because the material in the Gospels does not always seem to uh, evince an interest in the past for the past's sake. It's not antiquarian. You know, it is a history of Jesus that's deeply invested in Jesus as a religious figure. Um, and actually, I think that would go some way in explaining why there's very little in the Gospels which does not have um, some immediate relation to um, faith or does not uh, try to evoke faith in, mm. in the reader. I think it's it's not antiquarian in that sense. Yeah, and I think one of the things which people might be surprised by is the fact that the Gospels don't contain anything, for example, about the appearance of Jesus. And, mm. you know, as you pointed out, John, last week, Mark doesn't really provide any details about Jesus's childhood or infancy either. Um, but, you know, both of these things are things which biographies generally provide. Yes, and I think, you know, you can, you can try and explain that away. You can try and say that, you know, maybe Mark... Uh, who is perhaps quite ascetic, mm. um, was, wasn't was interested in the appearance of Jesus. But I think another way of explaining it is just by saying that uh, they weren't particularly interested in it. Um, it's not something that had immediate relevance for them. Um, I think also there's something to this idea about forms. So broadly, broadly speaking, the material in the Gospels clearly does fall into some fairly generic subgenres. Um, so with typical features reappearing in certain forms or certain types um, and one one possible explanation is that these forms have been shaped over time by multiple tradents or people passing on the tradition uh, to be an aid uh, to memory in the passing down of tradition um, but there are also uh, other possible explanations of the forms such as that you know an author who's been steeped in oral tradition might be able to imitate the forms in telling them uh, or an eyewitness might have shaped the telling of a story over uh, multiple performances. So I don't think it's ever as simple as the form critics made out. Just We can just point to the existence of forms and just assume this very lengthy, anonymous mm. form critical model of all transmission. You know, it may be that they, it may be, for example, that um, some of the material in the Gospels is told in a generic sense or has been shaped by an author who ha who knows oral tradition and is very familiar with the with the types of genres of oral tradition, but the material is actually quite close to eyewitnesses. I think that is a possibility. Yeah. So I think it's probably good now if we look at some of the challenges to form criticism and perhaps take the same criteria that we looked at last week. You know, firstly, does it make sense of the data of the Gospels? And uh, does it make sense of what we know about oral tradition? And does it make sense of the Jesus movement in general? Okay, so starting with the data of the Gospels, we've got to ask ourselves, does a free, informal, uncontrolled model where there's all this fluidity um, really explain the data of the Gospels as we have it? Um, and I think there is quite a lot of evidence that it doesn't. Because, say, we might take this, uh, the same parable or the same prayer in two Gospels. You know, we might take the Lord's Prayer. Um, where we do see changes which might have come about due to the influence of an oral process of transmission, as the form critics think. Um, so, for example, the Lord's Prayer, where we have small changes in Matthew and Luke, where Matthew has blessed are the poor in spirit, whereas Luke has blessed are the poor. 
you know, the differences aren't so great there as to think of this process as an enormously fluid process. And I think that kind of criticism can be um, can be multiplied further to, to other places in the Gospels. Mm, and I, I think also in relation to the depiction of Jesus, the picture of Jesus that emerges across the Synoptic Gospels is quite consistent, actually. Yeah. Um, and I've got here in my notes, actually, a, a quote that um, I really like from C.H. Dodd about Jesus's teachings. He says, the first three Gospels offer a body of sayings on the whole, so consistent, so coherent, and withal so distinctive in manner, style and content that no reasonable critic should doubt whatever reservations he may have about individual sayings that we find here reflected the thought of a single unique teacher. That's a great quote. Mm. And uh, actually, <laughs> I, I've been reading about C.H. Dodd and apparently there was this... Uh, this uh, little limerick that went went on about C.H. Dot, <laughs> which was uh, there once was a man called Dot, whose whose name was exceedingly odd. He spelt, if you please, his name with three D's when one was sufficient for God. <laughs> well, I feel and like I feel like our listeners are going to remember that over his that actual was, quote. Well, <laughs> I, I actually raised this, and other and and people raise it in their in their books um, mm. in discussing oral tradition because he had something to say about this, um, because. There we have a, a form, if you like, mm. which is a limerick, which is easy to remember. And I do wonder whether there is an element in which part of the reason why these parables are not subject to, a, to, to the enormous variation that some of the form critics think um, they were subject to mm. is because they are packaged in these somewhat memorable forms. And, you know, we'll think more about this uh, next week, but... Um, yeah, I think I just uh, thought I'd uh, raise that little uh, little limerick. <laughs> but yeah, we've got to ask, as Dodd says, you know, what's a more reasonable explanation? Mm. That much of the teaching has been composed by anonymous individuals and added to the tradition. Um, and it just so happens to present a coherent picture of the person of Jesus. Mm. Or the, his explanation is that there was a real interest in preserving the teachings of Jesus as it appears to have been preserved. And the latter explanation, I think, is a much more a simple explanation, um, which is not to say, um, you know, as he says, that there might be reservations about individual sayings, you know, things, additions might have been made along the way. And that's perfectly fine. Um, but with thinking about the, the portrait of Jesus as a whole, as it emerges in, in the Gospels, Synoptic Gospels. Yeah, but, but there's also an issue, isn't there, um, that the form critics make some quite major mistakes in relation to the oral tradition. Yes, and that would be our sort of second criterion, like, do they actually understand oral tradition? Um, and there are quite a few criticisms that we could discuss here, but uh, just to fire through a few of them quickly, there's a criticism of the fact that the, 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 the form critics got their analogy of oral tradition from the passing down of European folklore, which had been transmitted for hundreds of years. Um, and so it doesn't seem to be a very good analogy for Palestinian tradition as it was passed down within you know, living memory in the first century. Um, and from these studies, they also assumed certain laws, uh, which we mentioned briefly earlier. So the idea being that you can work back from these laws to a pure or original form. But when you actually analyse the same traditions in the sources, there doesn't actually appear to be a particular way in which the tradition is growing or developing. Like these laws are just simply not borne out. And a lot of people here cite E.P. Sanders' um, famous study, The Tendencies of the Synoptic Tradition, because he shows that there is no tendency for a tradition to be expanded or elaborated or abbreviated or smoothed out. Uh, it just changes as it changes. Um, and this makes it very difficult to imagine 
what the oral tradition was like before the Gospels. Uh, it, it also frustrates what the form critics want to do in sort of working back to a pure or original form because the laws just don't actually work. They're just assumed from this folkloric um, analogy and they don't actually make sense. But it also takes us to problems with the notion of a pure or original form anyway. Because what does it actually mean to think about original forms when Jesus presumably delivered his teaching in different ways and in different times and so on? Mm, and I, I think that this kind of criticism can also be made to the notion of the setting in life. You know, if we re- return to that phrase, the sitsum liban, yes. the form critics thought that particular forms derived from particular settings. Uh, you know, but, but why should we expect this? Certain types of material may have been performed in a variety of settings and used for a variety of purposes. Yes, and uh, just as we're sort of really taking the form critics to task here, you know, on that notion of this, this is in Lieben, notice how the whole process is actually circular. Because the argument is that the gospel units derive from particular settings in the church because they are placed in different forms. And the evidence for this is the different forms which are taken as reflecting, uh, reflecting different settings in the church. So it's actually a circular argument which Rudolf Boltman acknowledged, he says, the forms of the literary tradition must be used to establish the influences operating in the life of the community, and the life of the community must be used to render the forms themselves intelligible. Mm. So he recognises its circularity. Yeah, I like that quote. Uh, I I think to finish, it would be good to just note some of the things uh, which the form critics got wrong about the early Jesus movement. You know, we've already mentioned that they didn't actually acknowledge the possible ongoing role of eyewitnesses in the movement. But, you know, what, what else is actually contested? Yeah, so on that note of the eyewitnesses, actually, some people have sort of mocked the form critics for mm. thinking that the all of the disciples of Jesus just vanished, you know, after after Jesus uh, Jesus ascended, uh, which is you know clearly a problem for their view if you can't factor in any of the disciples because we know, for example, from the letters of Paul that uh, people like Peter uh, and James, the brother of the Lord was still operating, you know, when he was writing in the in the 50s, or I say operating, you know, they were still alive and they're mm. still probably in a teaching capacity. They were the pillars of the church, he says. But another problem is the dichotomy form criticism seems to forge between the Palestinian Aramaic-speaking church and the Greek-speaking church of the diaspora. So you mentioned briefly that they thought some forms were um, had a sitzim laban in the the Palestinian church uh, yes. of Jerusalem, and some had uh, a sitzim laban in the Greek speaking church. And the form critics, the form critics, are always trying to locate the former and see material in the Greek speaking church as a kind of accretion to the tradition as it develops. So uh, lots of material once it's recognised as having a Greek sitzim laban, a uh, Greek setting is just dismissed. The problem with this is that studies after the form critics, particularly those of Martin Hengel, uh, have really accentuated just how Greek Judaism was, particularly in Jerusalem. And when this is taken together with the connectedness of early Christianity and the travel of uh, early Christian leaders, we can see how the material might have taken on quite a Greek flavour very early on. So it's very difficult to make this sort of separation between the Greek and the Mm. Aramaic settings. Mm. Also, uh, issues with seeing early Christian prophets as a source for much of the material in the Gospels. Um, And uh, here we might note the work of James Dunn, who um, sadly recently passed away. He was sort of giant of scholars, wrote lots on the oral tradition and uh, the historical Jesus. 
And he noted that actually the early Christian movement more widely is actually quite sceptical of prophecy. There's a number of texts which talk about testing prophecy and testing prophets um, in early Christian literature. Yes, and I think it's quite reasonable to suspect that one way of testing uh, what prophecy was genuine was by checking whether it cohered with the character of the person of Jesus in the traditions passed down. Yes, so um, say if we created a cult of uh, Thomas Hester, you know, and uh, and then we went to one of these cult meetings. Uh, you've you've sadly just passed away, Tom. Oh, okay. um, and but you've ascended into heaven. So oh, that's, brilliant! That's a good thing. Good. Um, and we go to one of these meetings, and someone says, "Tom has just spoken to me, uh, and he is telling us that his favourite colour is pink." Not true. Uh, certainly not true. Um, I've never seen. I don't think I've ever seen you wear pink. I've never seen you uh, possess anything pink i can tell that this is probably just in the person's imagination i've been Mm. able to test uh that with what i know generally about you Mm. and so i think there was this sort of there was still this what scholars refer to as the collective memory of jesus there's this reputation of jesus that um i think early christian prophecy would probably have had to conform to to Mm. a certain extent to be believable uh, as a word from the lord and that would have kept some kind of check on the traditions as well. There's an issue not only in relation to Christian prophets, but also uh, in relation to uh, the Sitzim Laban, in that if much of the material originated for particular contexts in the life of the church, the, the setting in life, why is the teaching of the church not more heavily reflected in the Gospels? So this is something that quite a few people have pointed out. You know, Why are issues and problems that the church were facing on issues like circumcision and spiritual gifts and justification by faith, these kinds of debates, why are they not simply retradicted? Why, why were people not receiving mm. revelations um, from the Lord of them, which are then re- retradicted back into the Gospels? Yeah. Um, it doesn't really seem to it seem to fit. It seems like the Gospels do have some kind of interest in preserving um, their master's teachings. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think John, there's so much more that can be said on this topic, and maybe we can cover, uh, you know, it's in part retrospectively as we go on to consider different models. But I think I think today we've had a very fruitful conversation. Yeah, and I I think it's amazing that you have also ascended to heaven in the latter part of the conversation as well. And we've made we've made known that my favourite colour is not pink. So what is your favourite colour, Tom? It's got to be between green and red, I think. Green and red. There we go. So if I ever do Christmas colours, if there is if there is ever a cult after my death, then then you know which one to verify. There we go. We've got the collective memory of um, of Tom. We do. We're distributing, and it's recorded, which we never had. We never had Jesus making a podcast, so that's that's one problem. But anyway, yeah, no, it's been it's been great having this discussion. Yes, uh, yeah, and thanks for listening. Thank you.